This is Included, the podcast. Conversations toward a greater understanding of the inclusive love of Jesus. Unpacking the mystery and wonder of the Word of God. For those seeking an affirming, equitable Salvation Army. For others. Thanks for joining. We invite you to take a posture of listening and exploring. As we seek together the good news for the whosoever. Welcome to Included, the podcast. My name is Chris Halliday. I'm a Salvation Army officer, a gay man currently in Amsterdam, but from Australia. You can probably tell that from my accent. And I'm joined today by the incredible and always joyful Sharon Priestley. How are you, Sharon? Good, thanks, Chris. How are you going? I am super. Sharon, you're joining me as a host today as we chat to a fascinating woman, Josephine Inc. And this is going to be a great conversation. Josephine was the Australia's first transgender priest. She's an Anglican priest currently working in the Uniting Church in Sydney, which is a, a branch of the Methodist Church uh, here in Australia. Sharon, what uh, was uh, what interested you in joining and being a part of today's conversation with Josephine? Um. Josephine is is such a, an amazing inspiration, I guess. Um, when you sort of like mentioned this uh, this conversation to begin with, did a lot of research and to discover more about Josephine, and she was just just an awesome, awesome, amazing um, person that's achieved so much as a trans woman. So, yeah, being someone that it inspires myself, and I, and I think she would be able to inspire a lot of other people that sort of like trans that are in the same boat, wondering where do they fit into the whole religion aspect of their lives, I guess. So, yeah, so I'm in charge of children's ministries at Packenham Corps and and Salvation Army in Frankston, uh, in Coburn, sorry. Try it again in Packenham. Packenham. (laughs) Packenham. Let's go with Packenham. And you're recently, Uh, well, it's not even recently, we're about a year on now since you were enrolled as a soldier at Packenham. What a great day that was. Absolutely. That was in um, July the 9th um, last year, and I was very excited to have Chris along on the day to uh, speak, which was lovely. So glad that you could drop by. It was very very exciting and also quite moving to be along. So I'm glad you asked me to to come along. Yes, yes. It was was nice to have um, two of my best, (laughs) two of my best uh, solo friends in the the core of the day, obviously Katie and yourself. So thank you very much for being there. Uh, and it's been quite a journey for you too. And obviously these conversations are around Josephine today, but you've got a long history yep. with the Salvation Army and, and some people may have heard your story. Your core hosted a fantastic event called Inclusion to Equity uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, Katie, the, the officer, uh, led that event and we were able to share some of that that content on on the included page. What did it mean mm-hmm. for you as a as a trans woman to share so openly in, in such a forum at that point and then to, to see what happened afterwards, which was actually the journey to soldiership? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it was an amazing experience. I mean, to be able to actually have the opportunity to be able to speak to not only our core, but multitudes of different cores and be able to put that out to, uh, to an audience as well and have the, the, the dignitaries that we had that day, the officers there that were that day, to be able to hear that word from coming from a, a trans person's perspective and what that feels like to be able to walk into a core and have that loving arms embrace you and not sort of like make you feel like you're you're an outcast. So 
was an amazing, amazing experience. And obviously, yes, it, it did lead to me being be able to come into uniform and all the other bits and pieces that have happened since, like uh, obviously taking over children's ministries and, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. So it's been an amazing ride and I've enjoyed every little bit of it. And I can't wait to see what happens in the future. Lots of people can't wait to see what happens in the future, but we're going to jump into this conversation with Josephine. we It's a great conversation. We will finish with the end of the conversation, so Sharon and I won't be back. But if you'd like more information or if anything came up today that you would like to talk about or connect with someone about, you're welcome to get in touch with us at the Included team. You can find us on Facebook at Included page or our website. There's a contact button on the website, which is Included page dot com we're always open uh, to hear from you we've got people all around the world who can connect with you if there's something you wanted to talk about of course if you want to get involved in some of what we do too we see our our purpose is trying to provide content and resources so that people connect to the salvation army and the church can wrestle with think through work through or have permission feel that they have permission to engage in questions around uh inclusion equity affirmation of people who are gender or sexuality diverse in the church but uh, now our conversation, an absolute pioneer, a trailblazer for those who are gender or sexuality diverse, Australia's first transgender priest, Josephine McDonnell Imken. Josephine, so fantastic to have you with us. How are you doing this morning in uh, balmy Sydney? Oh, this evening in Sydney. Um, I'm, yeah, good, good, actually. Yeah, we had a fantastic event, ecumenical event, um, LGBTIQ um, event, Pancake Pride, uh, People of Faith on um, Tuesday. And so we're still sort of alive with that. It was tiring, but fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you say it's tiring, but I see you glowing as you say that, and people can't see that, of course, but we we can see you glowing here. Um, I wanted to bring that up, and that's a fantastic way to start. Um, I, I would like you to introduce yourself so that the listeners hear from you, you know, who you are and some of your history. But I want to open with a quote of, of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Carl Hand, who is a minister in Sydney, was at this mm-hmm. event, Pancake Pride, and I saw it on Facebook, and you were with Anthony Van Brown then, Uh, at the event, and Carl wrote this. He said, uh, I'm standing here with two of the most important queer faith leaders in Sydney's history. Now, that's a a big claim. Would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and maybe what it it led Carl to make such a fantastic endorsement of who you are? Well, yes. I mean, there's a few things we could say. (laughs) Um, But my name is uh, Josephine, and I'm uh, English. You can tell from my accent. And I was there for about 40 years and I was ordained there, brought up in the Anglican Church and all that sort of thing, and got married in the Anglican Church and um, and then came to Australia. And um, but uh, three years ago, I um, I took up the position of minister in placement at Pitt Street Uniting Church. I've, I've worked for the National Council of Churches and uh, the Ecumenical Council of New South Wales, that sort of thing. Um, and I uh, was a, actually not just an Anglican minister, but also uh, recognised and regarded Methodist minister in England for a little while. Um, so I, I'm sort of in that space, a long story in that, partly because Sydney is so conservative on Anglican terms and they wouldn't let women preside and, and lead and things, but also because Pitt Street is has a history and, and relate back to Carl's question is we, we have about 40 years of being um, well, probably more than affirming, empowering place for LGBTIQ people. And we had the first out 
um, queer minister in Australia in Dorothy McRae McMahon. And I think she, I mean, personally, I would put her as probably number one, actually, of, of the great queer leaders from Sydney, faith leaders. And um, she's she's still Minister Emeritus with us. And, and it feels like standing on um, giant shoulders when you have the job that I have here. And, and there have been other um, queer ministers at Pitt Street. And my predecessor, Margaret Mayman, who's in Melbourne, is also somebody that I feel as if I'm, um, you know, standing on her shoulders as well. But but Carl's right, certainly about um, Anthony Ben Brown, I think, who is extraordinary um, man and just recovered. It was the first time he'd come back from a major operation last um, on Tuesday to join us. But to be honest, I look at that photo and there was three of us and I said it was like a trinity. I didn't mean that Carl was Jesus or anything. We were one of the trinity. But there were th three of us there. And I think I represent some of the sort of the, the older historic traditions and and Anthony it's Pentecostal um that powerful um tradition that's renewing still renewing parts of the world but spit stuck on a few things but Carl is himself an extraordinary leader and I would put him up there with the people that I've mentioned um but also because he represents the Metropolitan Community Church and I always feel that churches like my own the Uniting Church which has made some progress and and in parts of the Anglican Communion we have and in other churches we're still playing catch up with the metropolitan community church and they broke the mold back in 1968 and so we all have a part to play i think in this and every church um that has any life in it um has has something i think in the lgbtiq sphere to contribute so um i'm happy to be acknowledged as the first i was the first transgender priest in australia out priest and I carried on working in the theological college where I was and I'm the first um, transgender minister in a mainstream church to be licensed as I was in Pitt Street and, and both of those things are in themselves sort of historic and I guess that's what Carl was referring to. Yeah, absolutely historic. And I think there'd be people listening today, not only in Australia, but around the world, but are su surprised that that is even <laughs> able to be the case today, let alone, you know, years ago. Uh, and you've been trailblazing for quite some time in, in this regard. Yes, well, that's right. Well, Elizabeth Plant, who's a wonderful minister in, in Sydney, she said the other night, you know, we like miracles. That's what I feel in a way, you know, from a certain point of view. But that's what God's doing. And 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 the gathering that was there, we, I don't know, 120, 130, 40 people, 150 people or something there. And um, from all sorts of different traditions, you know, including a Catholic priest. And and um that we that we exist, I think, is quite would be quite shocking to people. But yeah, but actually we're just some of us are sort of like the what you call it, the first fruits of the great harvest that that's happening, I suppose, to use a biblical phrase. <laughs> right. Now, you've had an amazing ride, and it does stretch back quite far. In fact, you were ordained as a deacon in 1986. You became a priest in 1987. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that process? Um, it, it must feel like both yesterday and a long time ago, but to be ordained back in 86 and and, and as a priest in 87, what, what was that like yeah, for you? It does seem a long time ago, and um, and I... I, I think, um, and at that stage, we were struggling for the ordination of women. And I was, I was able to, and I did agonize because I was married to my, I met my wife at Theological College and she was one of the first priests who were ordained in the Church of England. 
And I did agonize about whether or not I would um, go forward to ordination. And, um, but I'm, I did, and partly because I thought, well, it's better to be in than <laughs> out and I get an extra vote in the House of uh, Clergy, whatever it was. But we were, um, you know, was we were struggling a little bit there. So in a way, I feel that was quite good training in a way. I thought we'd done the pioneering thing then, and we were one of the first, I think the second couple who got maternity, well, my wife got maternity leave in the Church of England. So we were breaking the mould then as pioneers. But I think I thought we'd done all of that, but of course we haven't done that. But I, I think that's often the case is, you know, that things in our life that um, where we begin and we learn with certain struggles, then later on, you know, God provides us with other things to use those gifts. <laughs> so it's been a wonderful journey in a way. I mean, I never expected to be in Australia, um, but that that for family reasons, we moved in 2001 and, and I've done a lot of different things in different places and um but um, yeah, so I'm I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Now you say I think a, a lot of people when they think of of those of us in ministry who who are um, gender or sexuality diverse in in some way, you know, we pick, we're pictured on the margins, you know, on the outer. But actually, you spent some time teaching at, at one of the the most prestigious universities in in England. You were at Oxford. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went. Yes, I went to Oxford twice. Actually, I did a history degree and then I did a theology degree and then I did a PhD eventually. Um, and and I taught yes in one of the theological colleges there, so I you know it's and that was quite amazing actually. I, I was doing some lecturing in one of the, one of the um, examination schools where lecture rooms where I actually had a viva for a for my degree you know an in, an interview with these with these dons and everything and so which was quite grueling but was successful. Um, so it was sort of like a turning round really. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I've had, I've had some of that background, you know, um, so, and that, I suppose that, again, that gives a bit of confidence in a way, because I know I can, you know, I suppose that helps a little bit because I knew that, I mean, my br brain's probably addling a bit now, but, but I mean, you, when you've had that sort of position, you can see through some of that. I mean, it is quite a privileged position, but you, you can also see through some of the, the nonsense that is covered up by, you know, theology that is actually quite thin when you actually come to address it. So I guess I, I'm very thankful for having had that, um, both in um, Oxford and Durham, that sort of education, really. Um, obviously, I love I love everything about Oxford, being someone that loves um, <laughs> like murder mysteries and watching all that sort of stuff and growing up with DCI Lewis and all that sort of stuff as well. Mm. Um, what was it like being in that sort of environment with all that history around you um, and, I guess, navigating, doing your PhD, aware of the subject matter that was contrasting to your own identity? Yeah, well, um, it, well, it's a, well, Oxford itself is, I mean, it was quite a weird thing because I... <laughs> When I went for an interview, I hadn't realised been this college, and they said, because I came from a particular part of England, and they said, oh, we've never had anyone apply to come to our college. Then it was, you know, the shows where I came a little bit from the rural margins. And they said, um, and then they, they, they said, oh, I think we've got some land there, haven't we? And that was sort of like, you know, I was coming out of this sort of strange, but so it was a little bit of a culture shock, but it is quite, I mean, it is a quite an amazing environment to be part of. Um, my PhD was, um, yeah, well, it, 
it was on first wave Christian feminism and it was on the struggle for the vote. But with that came a whole lot of other things that out of that came the first ordinations of women um, uh, in the Congregationist tradition initially, although there was a sort of a rogue Presbyterian woman um, was sort of ordained. Um, and then the, the origins of the Anglican campaign for the ordination women and a whole lot of other things. And the the, the movement, especially in England and in Australia, um, had, you know, there were huge numbers of, of, of church women involved at all sorts of different levels and organised groups and things. But being as it was about women, historians hadn't written much about it, but they were involved in the, you know, the struggles for, for all sorts of different justice, justice as well. It wasn't just sort of a vote. And um, so I, I guess it was a way for me um, living as a mountain to be able to, um, you know, to to be engaged. And people used to say, um, oh, what is what are you a man doing, you know, writing women's history? And I said, well, oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so um, I guess, yeah, it's a way of sort of connect of connecting a little bit. And then I, I suppose out and I am still very strong feminine. I, you know, I always have been thanks to my mother and things. And probably my father to some degree. Um, I think um, I, I I know that we we are not you know uh, that for trans women particularly we wouldn't be where we were but for the feminist movement. And although there are problems with a small section of women um, that have misused feminism and probably out of a certain misconception of second wave feminism, um, actually we we wouldn't be that plus the the gay liberation those two two strands i think in a way trans people have always been there as we know the stonewall riots whatever whatever they threw to begin with whatever it was a brick or a whatever else a handbag or whatever um it was probably thrown by a trans woman because we were there right we've always been around but i think it's only in the last um 10 years 20 years or so that that we've started to come to the fore and um but it's because uh feminists and gay people have questioned they've they've rethought the body they've 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 shown how sex and gender and all these things are actually culturally formed um and so therefore it's easier i think for people you hope to to realize that gender is in the same sort of space really i i guess there's a lot of that sort of stuff going on with different like let women speak group organizations like that and people like that that's sort of like exactly what you're talking about right now um yeah i'm also you know, reflecting now on your decision to publicly announce transition in 2017 what was mm -hmm. that like i mean it must be so much so much oh, that to do that, that considering what you've done <laughs> Yeah, it was very quite hard. I remember ringing up. I, actually, I remember ringing up somebody about to get some support. And I realized the walls just came tumbling. I mean, for years and years, I mean, my, my wife knew about that. You know that I was, that was, <laughs> from very very early on in our relationship. And in a way, I say this, and I'm not joking. That in a way, being a pre Anglican priest, they used to say there were three genders almost. You know, like there was male and female, and then there was clergy. And there's a certain sense in which, especially in the Catholic tradition, where we get to wear funny clothes and everything else, um, and and a lot of gay, a lot of gay men in the Anglo-Catholic tradition of the, and um, and I guess 
that tradition, because it's, it, it has more feminine aspects, was a way in which I was able to survive for a while. But, you know, eventually, I mean, I was just, the older you get, and anyone who's been, who's an older trans person knows this, that, that, that as it goes by year by year, decade by decade, the harder it is to deny. And I felt like the walls were closing in, that, you know, I was just um, like one of those awful Doctor Who things, you know, where whether everything follows you and these awful angels behind you, what's happening to you to say all that. Um, and it, it was, it was grim. And I, and I was sort of addicted to a few things that we won't go into in detail, but, um, and, but so when the walls finally fell down, I was able to accept myself, even though I'd been, um, because the thing is I started to come out in when I, in my thirties and if I'd stayed in England, I would probably have come out in about 2000, well, about the time I came to Australia or a year or two after, because um, just before I came out, just before I came to Australia, the first two trans women priests came out in the Church of England. And I remember the first, I saw the first uh, on a paper, the, this story, and it was like, I was transfixed. It was like, I don't know, um, I can remember that, I, I can see the moment, I can feel it. It was so, that I'm possible. And I guess that was the thing for me as somebody growing up in a rural area, very, you know, we just didn't have the language. And um, so really hard just to survive in that sort of environment years back. But in the church as well, you just so you did what you could and you managed what you could. And thank God today there are more options, although I think what we've seen, you know, some some women are part of that, um, is that there's this reaction because we've now made progress and then they you know, before they used to laugh at us and all the rest of it, and now they they really want to stop us. So trying to get out of that was quite hard. And, and in Australia, which is a far more conservative religious sphere, and the Anglican Church is too, although parts of it are, are rather wonderful, and I was fortunate to be in the Brisbane area. But I rang up this per person in, in uh, to, for help, and I said, how can I do this? It's impossible. I can't stay any longer, but I can't. And if I come out, my wife will probably get thrown out as well, because you know, then we'll be in a same gender relationship and everything else. And she said, um, and she stopped me and she said, after a while I was pouring out my troubles and I, and she said, um, well, are there, I think you're looking too far on the bleak side of it. And actually, are there some people in your church? And I was working in Toowoomba, which is known as a fairly conservative place in your church. And I said, well, actually there are, but there are also others. And I, I did move from there when I, so it was a it was a process because I didn't want to sort of cause the conflict and the space I was able to come out in, but it was a it was a very tricky journey and I gradually had to talk to different people and I was blessed by having an archbishop who was very supportive personally although he was concerned about the political ramifications, an amazing group of people of colleagues that. St Francis College in Brisbane who are absolutely brilliant and almost all the students and um, but I didn't know it was like leaping into the unknown and I had a little bit of support from one of the, the first trans women priests in Britain wonderful woman called Tina Beardsley Dr Tina Beardsley and she's written some books which people could follow up and she's a bit my mentor and and so she helped a little bit but she was back in England you still had to do it on your own so you just had to leap out, you know, and, and I, you know, and that's so, and that's what you have to do. I mean, I don't know, you know, for, Sharon, you know what it is, but I once read this wonderful article 
of, of you know the transfers it probably go for some gay people as well it's like you're chased by this sort of monster or you feel it's a monster behind you this is my experience and then you get to a point when you try and run away for a long time but then so you get to a point where you, you've got a point where you either have to jump off this cliff because they've chased you to this point or you have to turn around and face the monster now some people that jump off the cliff actually because that is and that's quite a courageous thing to do and everything sad though it is but when you turn around it's scary you don't know what it's going to do you don't know what's going to happen you don't know who's going to and my experience was this council was right that there were people like my archbishop and other people who were supportive but they might not have been and and then there were some other people and it doesn't always work does it when people come out you, you can't predict always who's going to who's going to sort of take it on and for a long time my aging parents i was absolutely scared to talk to them about it my brother and sister were right um but they were amazing when i i came out with them you know but um who would have known because you know i thought you know that that sort of helped me Matt. so i think that experience you know thinking about it I, what i would say is and and uh, because i've because i've you know i i i've been quite blessed in different ways um and you know to have support of my wife and that sort of thing so i realized that i'm a little bit you know and i've got degrees and things so um but um in a way, I, I guess that's the way I see God has sort of gave me those things. So I was able to do something that hadn't been done before, you know, to come out in that difficult space. Because I knew as soon as I stepped over the line, not only would I get a lot of negativity, but I'd have a whole lot of people. I mean, I had a lot of that night that I came out, a whole lot of people that day. And I had a whole lot of, you know, um, media people try and want to talk to me and all that. You know, and and I have still, you know, I mean, it's slowing down now, thank God. But um, you know, and and eventually, you know, and I did. Julia Bear did a wonderful piece, which we agreed, and I was on TV and thing. Um, and a friend of mine, we did something else. You know, you, but but you can find that, you know, in my position, you know, that was a thing as well. You know, how's that going to play out, and how's that going to impact on everybody else? So it was quite a big thing. Now I think about it. Yes, you've got me wrapping on, haven't you? So it was quite a big, that was a great question. <laughs> well, I'd like to, to follow up, actually, because as you tell the story, you've been at the forefront of activism for such a long time, um, whether it's through uh, in the early days, you know, your your wife and pushing in through feminism yes. and then this process of, of being in a con conservative part of the, the church here in Australia and then coming out and even up until uh, last year, there were some attacks on your church uh, in mm. Sydney. I've, I've got to ask, is it exhausting? It, it, and now you say even there's this new wave of um, of, of tension. You know, obviously transgender yeah. issues are back at the forefront and there's a bit of a conflict with some in the feminist movement. Are you tired? How do you keep going? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, well, it is a lot down to, I, I think, I don't, I mean, it, there's lots of, as we know, lots of LGBTQ people who don't have any time for church quite, and quite for some of the experiences and everything that we're still enduring. But for me, and I've said this, and, I, and a lot of people have found it, is that I would not be alive if it wasn't for my faith. And I say that to queer people. And and it's interesting, someone from Switchboard in Melbourne, um, Victoria was talking about this and they were saying yeah that was their experiences actually there's quite a few of us who would not be alive queer people if it wasn't for faith not not the, the side churches I mean there can be a disaster 
So I think it is in a way that that has kept me going. That sounds a little bit pious and what's saying, but I mean, it, uh, there are other things that keep me going, like my wife, and but also the amazing people that I meet. You know, we mentioned some of them earlier, like um, Anthony Ben Brown and 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 all the rest that we had the other day. But um, but yeah, it is time. And 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 what has been particularly hard. Um, it's a little bit better now because we've got the Albanese government, even though they haven't passed some of the things that they should do. But you know, the Morrison era was was grim because what we were, what I found was that queer people of faith were being got it in both sides. Because the right wing, and I blame the right wing mainly, and the Christians who led that tried to frame for their own uses, not just because they don't like us, but because they want to build up power in their own institutions. They tried to frame queer people as fundamentally unchristian. So we're being kicked out and attacked by them. And on the other side, you've got people, some of whom I have sympathy with, who've had appalling experiences. But to be frank, there are some in the queer community, and it's changed, and it's got better, but there's still some in the queer community who are quite negative towards people of faith, and I know people, and you probably do, who actually sometimes find it easier to come, to say I'm a, to, I'm a gay person or a trans person than to say I'm a Christian in some circumstances. So that's a, that, that was a difficult thing. And because of the, Mor the Morrison government policies, it sort of ex it exacerbated that. So that was a really deeply frustrating thing. And most of us and queer activists in general found ourselves were exhausted because every year they did this awful thing that there was some submission we had to make about schools or about marriage equality or whatever. And the awful um, experience of, you know, having other people voting on our lives and whether we could get married and everything. All of that was quite, quite grueling. So, yeah, we've gone through yeah, I, sometimes I wonder how long I can go. But, you know, I mean, that was why Pitt Street was a, a wonderful gift to me, because we are one more. Well, you know, it, there isn't more than 100 percent, but if there was, we would be more than 100 percent, you know, empowering. So there's no doubt about what you can do. And I can freely talk about, you know, um, the wonderful gifts of queer people in theology, because so much of our debate in churches is about, you know, a few texts, a few verses that we've done to death um, in the Bible or, you know, make, seeing us as problems rather than as amazing gifts and miracles, which is what we are. And we're part of, we're not the only thing, we're part of the, I think we're part of the transformation of the church um, that the church desperately needs, but is sort of so slow to, to admit, you know, there's a whole lot of other people as well, but. But from where you stand, I think we're seeing in different parts of the church around the world uh, growing support and acceptance for people who are gay or lesbian, or we might say a same-sex attracted, and we're still nowhere near where we need to be even on, on that front. But there seems to be at least an acknowledgement that um, lesbian people and gay people do exist and are entitled to loving, committed relationships, living out the fruit of, of God and, and love in partnership um, but you could, it's quite clear we still have a way to go for people who are transgender. We're still nowhere near quite the acceptance there. And so how does that, how does that feel for you as, as someone who's, who's seeing some of the progress, but also aware that in, in this particular area, particularly as it, as it, um, pertains to and affects you so deeply, we still have a way to go in the church. 
Yeah, oh, we do. But I think in society that's true. You know, I mean, if, it was a few years ago, Peter Tatchell, you know, was a great sort of gay activist Australian in mainly worked in England. But he, he said that quite well, you know, that we, we trans people, gender diverse people, about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years behind um, where gay people are up to. Um, and I think that's true. As I say, we've always been around, but um, we, you know, we haven't been sort of named. And because people are so happy to frame everything in binaries, you know, good and bad and everything else, and then there's gay and then there's straight and all the rest of it. So then we're confusing. And, you know, non-binary people, I think, are quite amazing because they take things on another level because, you know, um, and thank God they do because then it's possible to be trans in in all sorts of different ways. You don't have to. I mean, when I started, I mean, back in many years ago, you know, back, there were all these things when you were in cross-dressing groups and all the rest about how you had to be a perfect type of woman. And when you went, if you went for, you know, and in still in some places, thank God it's gone a bit, but you, know, you, have, you had to pretend that you were super feminine in order that they would give you hormones or um, or that they would allow you to have surgery and things. So we were, I, I think we, we've moved on. Um, I do think that, I think there's a, I do, I do think that, I mean, we saw that with the marriage equality thing was where people, I think the right wing realised they, they've, they've lost for the time being the battle over gay people. But the way to get, get at queer people is to attack trans people because there are fewer of us and people don't understand us. And people still say to me, quite nice people who are actually quite progressive, and they said to me, you know, you're the first trans person I've ever met. I don't know whether you've had that shown. And I go, really? Are you sure about that? And then I then I find out in their congregation, for example, if they're a pastor, there's usually at least one or two <laughs> sitting in the thing. You know, some of them, because um, there's that sort of assumption we're not, because we haven't been visible. And there's, But I do think we, we probably challenge on another level, you know, this sort of idea, I mean, biological determinism, the sort of ideas that um, we are different. There are some distinctions with, you know, trans to gay, as we know. And I think, you know, that sort of the idea, a lot of it comes down, doesn't it? I mean, I hate to say it, it comes down to genitalia, is that the reason that people don't really like gay people very much, especially gay men, women, not too good, but we don't think too much about that. But gay men, it's because of particular genitalia that gay men have. And I think it's I think it's the deep offence of some trans people when we change our genitalia that um, is so disorienting for people. And it, it challenges people beyond, they use scripture to, to beat us up. But I think underlying it is the sort of a sense in a troubled world that somehow we are undermining the very foundations of nature do you know what i mean that we're sort of disturbing the these sorts of natural things so education's a major thing to it you know that a lot of people just haven't i mean a lot of people they still say don't they you know there's there's these chromosomes and you've got this or that and people there's people i still meet who deny that there's people that we now call people with intersex conditions they, they deny it you know and and I tell you, when I look at it, that there's a lot of commonalities around men and women, just taking those two sorts of genders. But actually, women are profoundly different, and our bodies are different in subtle, you know, in, in different subtle and sometimes quite dramatic ways. So I think it it 
it's about moving beyond you know those boundaries and i think if we can do that it will free everyone this is what's fit i feel it will free women you see because if you take trans bodies seriously and you take genitals seriously in a positive way not a shameful way then you start to say we got to do something about the fact that women are not treated you know reproductive organs are not treated properly and that they suffer awful things that so much more money goes into men's health than it does into women's health so i think when we see that it's about all of us together rather than you know that there's one group that's better than another and i think that's what we do in that's what people do in history generally and politicians do that and and sadly religion despite the fact jesus taught us to move beyond the purity codes we keep going back to them don't we that's the thing only we instead of i say to people they say so i say you know it, it's really the story i mean i think the bible's amazing because some of the story if you read it rightly and i say you know it's like in the you know in the first century or so Christians got a bit hung up, the Jewish ones, the Judean ones, about um, food laws. And so Gentiles were full of the spirit and everything else, but because they didn't eat the right food and do, and do the keep the all the commandments, they were they were on the outer and looked as what's well, saying. Well, they got over that, and that's what the apostle tells us a bit about that. And I think it's much like that today. We've got a bundle of laws, as it were, or rules that probably work very well for straight people, you know. That's good. Sleep with the, you know, sleep with your wife, look after your kids, all that sort of stuff. But if you're not made as a heterosexual person, those rules aren't really relevant. Um, they can give us nothing else. That's the problem. Is that our churches don't have a very good sexual ethic now to help us, and people need those things. But we, but we've been tied up with this idea that you've you've all got to be like this bunch of people, despite the fact Jesus said there's neither male nor female and all that, which sort of make well put some Paul. So, you know, which challenges us to see, not that he was denying that there was differences, but that but that ultimately what really matters is whether or not you know the love of God. That's that's all that really matters, I think, you know, and that's what they and that's what Paul and Peter, they eventually they turned around and realized it. And I think that's what our church is called today, you know, to realize that see the love of God and the spirit in us and then follow that, really. <laughs> Um, listening to you talk, uh, Josephine, it's, it's amazing because I can, so many things that you say that I can actually relate to and say, yep, I've been there, done that, known exactly what you said. <laughs> relate to every single word you're saying. Growing up in a small country town and having not having the language yet and yeah. then sort of like, you know, and, and at the cliff and jumping off and all the rest. I've, I've been here. I know it. It's, it's nice to be able to find someone that's actually had that experience. <laughs> be able to share your sort of like compare notes if you like. But I don't they amazing that they're amazing so I don't know what you think so once you start get digging into them they are spiritual experience and you tell the story and this is about you know it's all about what Jesus talking about you know get out of the you know to what's his name in you know hiding in the darkness and all that sort of thing and it's scary to come out of the dark into the light you know but um that's what the gospel is yeah absolutely look on that note look a question just popped into my head and I've got to ask it because <laughs> um, I just have to. <laughs> One of the questions that I was asked, um, or statements more to the point, when I first came out to a, a Christian friend of mine was, oh, yeah, but God doesn't make mistakes. Have you ever had that one thrown at you? And how did you respond? 
I think the probably, sorry, uh, I just saw your reaction there, Josephine. I think the question sh shouldn't be, have you ever had that one thrown at you? But when did you lose count of having that one thrown at you? <laughs> I know. Well, you do get these weird things, don't you? I mean, they, they come out and, 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 you know, I remember the MCC Brisbane, I used to go there sometimes, and somebody said to me and they were saying, you know, they, were, they went to something and then they got back with about the Bible. And they said, and they turned around and they said, you do know that, you know, if you're gay or trans and you're a person of faith, we know the Bible better than just about anyone. We've really wrestled with it. As You know, these questions as if they've, you've never thought of them before. And I think, well, no, I'm not a mistake at all. So if my body is, you know, if I'm if I'm as I am and, and we don't know all the research yet, do we? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people investigate. I mean, I know they've done stuff on our brains and, everything, and other things. And they'll probably, you know, you probably could work out something whatever and all that but you know i think we know now and that that and that's the sad thing is that we know that the medical establishment and the world health organization and everything you know that they understand that and actually there is the scientific medical for if people want to do that so if that's the way we're created um well then let's enjoy that and it's only if you see you've got some idea I mean, I think some Christians get hung up on they've got an idea of a perfect human being. And, and it's a wonky idea that there's some sort of perfection that that God and then we had a fall. But I think the idea of the fall and maybe I'm a bit of a liberal here, but I think the fall is more like um, is, is a symbolic mythological way, story way of telling why we've got even not. There isn't a literal time when the, everybody was like one like. Scott Morrison or something, and then and then after that, everyone fell. Because, I mean, for the first centuries, there was arguments about whether women had the same, had souls like men, because we were, you know, women weren't quite as good as men. And, what's and you can either say differences in humanity, what's, but if you start with Jesus, and that's the thing, if you start with the crucified Christ, who's the resurrected one, that is, that is not a perfect human being. They've been killed. They've been what's that? They're right. They're the they're the outsiders. So if you want to look at where God is, then look at look at Jesus the Christ, not at your ideal thing. And and so the Jesus, you know, for trans men, they tell me, you know, it's a wonderful trans priest in America, and they talk about you know the, at the resurrection, Jesus, he still got these the scars. You know, it's like the scars, you know, of, of top surgery or whatever, still with them. And this is in a way they're res. Trans people are resurrected people, you know, because our bodies have been, you know, we're a new body. We're with a resurrected body, you know, and obviously we're not in the eternal sense, but we are signs of that. That's what I think, to, you know, for us to, it is the way you look at things, you know, and and do we, I mean, we have, it's this, It's similar, isn't it? I mean, I'm a white person from Britain, so I've had to do a bit of work in Australia as well, about, you know, of the of the awful consequences of invasion in, in Australia and so on, which is through British and, and our lenses, the people who came from my country, were that they, I mean, a lot of it was unconscious, but it was appalling because they just did not see what an amazing culture and amazing people there are in this land who live peacefully and harmoniously in the land that we're now struggling with climate change, everything. And um, because they've got the wrong lens, they're looking at things wrong. And I think it's similar to that sort of thing. But the one that I really loved quite a bit at one stage, that used to wind me up to begin with, was people there used to say, 
Well, you know, well, if you're trans, you've decided to be trans. I'm a helicopter. Or someone said, I'm Napoleon. And I said, oh, that's lovely. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, um, I said so do you eat helicopter food? You know, do, 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 do you live off oil or whatever? And they said no. I said, Napoleon, you'd be, you know, you'd be on the island of St. Helena, about six feet deep or whatever. And, um, you know, it's sort of a nonsense when they create these sort of ideas. For me, the test is, I mean, most women don't question me. They just sort of, I've, I've been very, it's men mainly, and, and rich and men who are the major problems. There's some women, who don't, but I think they sort of, I mean, I, I sort of, <laughs> some of the women sort of go, well, if you want to be a woman and put up with what we've got to do, then we'd like to, you know what I mean? And, 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 you, and then you do start to experience some of the, you know, negative negative things as well you know i mean i i remember vividly you know i was at the theological you know teaching and and i it, i remember the day and it was only about two or three weeks in when i was in a meeting and the classic thing that happened used to happen to my wife a lot is you know when a woman speaks and then you say something and then about half an hour later a man will seize on it say it and then the things and i found that was the case is that after a while they weren't sure what to do with me, but then after a while they think, oh, well, you're a woman, so we can just put you in that box and forget about you. So, um, yeah, I don't know, I'm rambling a little bit there, but um, yeah, it's about changing. It's about, I think we have to stick up for ourselves and say that and realise that all of us and that's that all of us in our world today, either we 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 run along and find, you know, get equivalent of Donald Trump sort of you know make Australia um, America great again or Donald or Putin or say we go around the great leader who has these myths of what thing or in my country in Brexit you know we had where they Britain can go it alone if only we go back to a golden age that never existed or we learn that we are imperfect human beings and we affirm the the truth that's in us, but in a way that is also open to learning from the truth of other people, you know, and that we're a mixture of things. So some of us are a little bit transphobic or homophobic. Some of us are probably still a bit racist. Some of us are a bit, you know, got things to learn. As we know in the queer community, I mean, I would, I mean, I mentioned a bit women. I mean, I do think women, I mean, we're still, you know, it's still a long way to go in, in that way. So there's a lot of, it. that's where I think we are today, really, is that, those sorts of, and that's why I've been involved in things like, not the only reason for doing, but you know, with First Nations struggles and other groups, is that I think it's I think it's together. Is that if if we get separated, and that's what they've tried to do, to pick off trans people, as sort of weird, and you know, we accept the gays because well, we don't really, but we but they're they're a bit like us, but we want to We need to find a scapegoat. The gays don't work anymore, so we'll find the trans people. And if people who are, or, you know, um, I don't know, the bunch of people that come from different ethnic backgrounds, if we allow people to scapegoat any group of people, then we're doing ourselves down. And that's what's so sad for me in women who support anti-trans things, is that the real enemy is not other, other women, trans women, or trans men, or non-binary people. The real enemy as it were that where is is looking at where power and wealth is because that the media the the you know the powerful media are forever picking on one group or another and it used to be you know i don't know um single mother single mothers when i was younger in england and now it's trans people i think 
and it used to be gay people but they've got too much money you know so, or something or power or so or this or seem they can't get in there somehow I'm getting to politics here, but I mean, I do think it is, I mean, it is a political struggle, isn't it? You know, it's about power, I think, you know, not not necessarily in party political terms, but, and and I've just written an article, actually, it took me a long while to do it, about our experience as trans people and, and queer people of faith during the, um, the marriage equality struggle and after, is that I felt there was, we got left out, you know, we, because the, the right wing picked on us, um, but a lot of the yes campaign was about you know happy family happy gay families and all that which is lovely but but actually um it doesn't actually represent the whole of the gay community either but it was almost as if we, we can't really talk about the trans people because they might you know that some of them are you know they, they don't quite fit you know and um all that sort of thing so there's a way to go i think you know absolutely Totally agree. I think it all sort of look, boils down to, I guess, something that, uh, like I concentrate on myself, inclusive practice. That's not just including trans people, but all different cultures and uh, nationalities and that sort of stuff as well. To yeah, to be a part of this amazing society that we've actually built here. Um, I'd like to touch on your name because I mean that was one of the, one of the great <laughs> things that I was able to do is choose your own name. <laughs> So you went with Josephine. Can you tell us about that? I believe she is, Josephine was a saint. Yeah, oh, well, in the Anglican tradition, yeah. But she was a sort of a saint that the church thing took a long while to sort of... She, she was um, she was married to a clergy person, um, but Josephine Butler, but she, her original name was Grey, and she comes from the great reforming family of the northeast of England, where I was born. And in the cent centre of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, they don't have... It's not a statue of a queen or anything like that or an invader of a country. It's this guy, the Grey, um, who passed the Great Reform Act back in, back in 1832 against Wellington and all these other people. But so he, she's part of this great sort of reforming tradition. And um, But her, what she's best known for is standing up for women and, and against, really against the, the double standard of the Victorian age where women were... The Victorians did an awful job of trying to say that women were like this and men were like that, and that women were expected to be angels in the home. They confined them to the home, especially middle-class women. They were happy for the working-class women to wear themselves out, but middle-class and upper-class women to, should stay in the home. And then men did all the work and whatever. But the men, and they had to be sort of, you know, absolutely virtuous, and they shouldn't have any sexuality. But the men were, were meanwhile able to go out and you know um uh exercise their sexuality with other women who were used to so see you had these angels in the home and then you had these other women who were on the streets literally and and um uh there were laws passed that it that meant that these women had to be inspected in um in ports and such like to prevent men from getting sexual diseases so these women were rounded up and you could be any woman in the in these places um and they'll be right you'd be rounded up and your body expect inspected and everything else when it was actually the men that were carrying this you know where it, the problem was actually for me so there was a whole lot of powerful thing but josephine butler as she's 
best known. Um, she's known really as the mother of Christian feminism because out of her work, she built this campaign against horrendous opposition. And, and over about 30, 40 years, she actually changed a lot of stuff. But out of a lot of her work and the people she knew came a lot of these other movements for education and health and, and you know, inspired all of those things. And she was an internationalist as well. So she's my, she, and she's, you know, she, she's, she's recognised as one of these women who, she, they did that they they were the, one of the great Christians within their thing, and the tradition then eventually canonized them, a bit like Mary MacKillop. You know how the the Catholic Church really kept her. You know, had she had big arms, Catholic Church in Australia, and now she's a saint because you can't keep a good woman down in that sort of a sense, and that's what that's what I think for me. For, for Josephine Butler. And, but she wrote this stuff, you see, when I was doing my PhD, she wrote this stuff and it was, you know, in the 20th century, we call it liberation theology, but she wrote this theology about, and she wrote about people like Hagar, for example, and as a model of what, of the women that were on the street. And actually, you know, in a way she was a sort of, a, there probably wasn't such a big gap between, you know, from Salvation Army point of view, between her and the sort of women that and men that were involved in the Salvation Army in terms of, you know, dealing with the lowest of the lower of, of the lower, literally on the streets and such like. And and then what Josephine did was sort of to campaign as well to try and change the circumstances as well as sort of look after them as it were as an ambulance and things. So, yes, I, I you know, she's she's a great inspiration to me in that sort of way, because she wrote this sort of proto feminist, proto liberation theology really as well. So that's a little bit about her. Yeah, that's that's um, that. But people names that names are interesting, aren't they? About how trans people choose their names. You know, I I I often ask people about this, and once in a while, people say, "Oh, I don't know. I just and I realised I needed a name. I was going to go to see a psychiatrist or something, or you know, you have to or your doctor, and he and they ask what's a name, and then you looked on a piece. Uh, it was a piece of paper, and it said, I don't know. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, Emily or something. But but actually, a lot of us actually have stories around it. So it, it grounds me. I suppose this story grounds me in my own background, my own tradition, my own radical tradition. And in, um, yeah, and, you know, which is, um, and that, you know, you draw strength from that really in your own idea. And that's one of the great things for trans people. But of course, it isn't from a faith point of view. It's not anything new because we people have been changing their names left, right and same, haven't they? You know, I mean, Abraham became Abraham and um, Sarah, Sarah and then Paul, Saul was Paul and and all that. And then if you're a monk or a nun, you can often choose your, you choose your own baptism names and that sort of thing. So... It's not really, um, you know, faith rocket science, is it really? It's, I mean, everyone in a way could do that, really, I think. It shouldn't be surprising to people of faith, the notion of changing or choosing your name. But you, you've lived a, a, a life uh, very much on the front line and very, as we've heard, very much in, in um, uh, pushing in areas of advocacy and activism. For many of us who are who are gender or sexuality diverse in society, but especially in the church, there's a real tension. In that, I think sometimes we're expected to just stay quiet and be appreciative, 
Um, and on the other hand, we we want to keep fighting for for more inclusion and more equity and more affirmation for uh, the next people and the next generation and for the other groups who are still excluded, particularly for people now who who are transgender. Uh, what what do you see? You're someone who has been somewhat accepted in, into society and certainly in the church. And, and but what do you see now in 2024? And you look back on the changes you've you've had since you first started you know, pushing through into this in the 80s. Um, what do you see now as the importance of advocacy and, and activism for LGBTQIA plus issues, in particular the trans issue? Yeah, well, there's still a lot of things to be done, especially in the trans space. And Equality Australia, I've done a bit of work with, and, and they've asked me on very kind on trans council that they've sort of established, and, and they're, they're one of the groups that's trying to bring about, you know, network of these things. And and there will be more of a backlash against us, I'm pretty sure about that. But and the and there's a series of things that need to happen, both on the national level and on in states. And New South Wales is still dragging its feet on a number of things, including conversion therapy and orientation change, those sorts of things. But my view is that, you know, people sometimes say to me, oh, you know, church is dead, you know, religion, you know, why have you got anything to do with that? My view is that it is actually um the last frontier. And and by which I mean. One of my heroes, um, Anglican woman, Maud Royden, um, she spoke in Pitt Street years ago and she was called the most dangerous woman in the world by the local media in Sydney because she spoke about a whole lot of things. But but she's, she said, why back about nearly about over 100 years ago when women were struggling, and they said, why is it that churches are so slow even when changes happen in the world? And she said, well, she thought it was the last citadel, the way I look at it is that it's the, that a lot of things can change. You can change laws. It's very hard to do. But how do you change the inner attitudes of people? And actually, until you've changed the inner attitudes of people, you're always vulnerable to some of these things being rolled back. So what we actually have to do is to have our, you know, it needs a spiritual transformation alongside all the advocacy. That's the way I see it. So I think the frontier is changing. And I do see this a little bit with queer people is that the queer community is beginning to realise that it's not enough just to sort of attack religion and hope it just goes away or corral it, because it's too strong, to some of, but it, we actually need to tran transform it. So we, as it were, we're, we're, we're I, I say to people, you know, even if you don't understand religion, we are, um, you know, we think, and you think people like me are nutty. Well, we might be, but you actually need us to transform, you know, put us more than put a spoke in a wheel. So so my thing is, coming back to your questions, I think the real challenge for queer people of faith, for example, is for us to affirm ourselves and what we're about unapologetically, rather than inclusion, which is what a big thing in the Uniting Church, but often it just means permission to belong. And I, I think we've got to move way beyond that to saying um, we are church already. The spirit we have, we we know the spirit. We are also sinners. We, you know, we 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 we're imperfect and everything else. But but our job is to share the good news that we are with the world because the world needs it. But and our churches need it. And if if the churches listen, that's lovely. And if they don't, it's a bit like Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet. So if you find you can't do something in a space. You might need to do something, but make links with other people because these inherited structures we've got, whatever we call the Salvation Army Anglican or whatever, they're all sorts of historical things. And we, 
actually the god is working through all of them that was the lovely thing about pancake pride where we got together and when you get together you then build strength you know what i mean because corner that's the purpose of having church isn't it for us not you can't do religion in your own corner because you get worn down but if you've got other people you can do it that's a bit of a long answer but i suppose that's what i'm saying it is about moving for me from you know permission to belong to truly empowering and sharing our good news and i think if a church is otherwise it's just assimilation i mean i i heard some leaders telling in a church and they said it was reported to me that they weren't going to do anything much about queer things um because they hadn't got the appetite and i thought how very sad it sounds like there are a lot of there are sort of frightened bunch of people and they'd rather not eat anything in case they yeah, so they've got anorexia nervosa, I think a lot of people in churches, to be honest, church leaders. They desperately need food, but the bread and the wine, as it were, that is being provided, God's providing them, they're sort of turning away. And so for me, it's like, to use that analogy a bit further, it's like we're invited to a feast in the table by God. And when the church is sort of purporting to do the feast, it can't just ask us to come in and eat the old bread the old stale bread or not eat much we want to we need to bring our own food in sing our own songs you know like pacific islanders or a or, or people from different communities in the united church wonderful they come in they sing different songs they bring their own culture and i think until we get to a position where our stories and our bodies and our bodily experience and our spiritual experiences is is rejoiced in you know as something that's not just not just belongs to that curious group of people but actually belongs to the whole then then we'll get somewhere i would like to ask you on one more of a personal level um next year you are going to be celebrating your 40th wedding anniversary to penny yes. <laughs> wow that is amazing an achievement you have two girls and also you are now grandparents Yes. Um, I guess I'd like to know on a personal level, as, as would anybody else, what makes a successful marriage as a, a trans person? Oh, that's a great question. And I really wish, you know, that churches would ask that. I mean, one of the reasons I moved on from the Anglican church bit was that they produced a, a ridiculous book, which was called Marriage and Same-Sex Marriage or something. And, and they deliberately excluded trans and intersex people from it because that really messes it up because they wanted to keep this binary but they didn't have any out gay people speaking either and then they got and it was absolutely rubbish because um what they talked about was what are the qualifications for getting having a wedding and a wedding is very different from a marriage and and i think it's quite weird because my friend uh mentor who you know who was one of the, the, the second trans priest in england and she 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 was originally she lived as a gay man and she had a partner she still has a partner the same partner who's a gay gay man or was in that sort of sense and then when she came out as as a woman and as a trans woman she was able to get married by the church of england when they couldn't get married when they were gay men if you see what i mean and then but now the case is that if i was to try and get married my wife and i in Australia, or for that matter, in England, I think, I wouldn't be able to get married, even though I am married in the Church of England. 
and what is that about? And it's about appearances, isn't it? You know, and it is that thing from the Psalms, you know, God, human beings look on the outside of appearances. God looks in the heart. And that's why it, to me, that's why they didn't want trans people in the debate about marriage. Because once you get into that circumstance, you realize it can't be about gender. It can't be about what genitals you've got or anything. It, it's something much deeper. So I think it's, um, we, so I think it's then getting on to the, the stuff that would really, really help us as a, as a world, probably a lot of people, which is about how do you find an ethic to live, including a sexual ethic. And I think it needs to be broader than, you know, just sort of like flipping over what the heterosexual ethic into a queer space. I think there's a, I think there's more space for that. And I, I definitely, I, there are friends of mine, trans people who uh who once they came out have been divorced and some of them amicably and some of them not quite so amicably what we found however is that as the understanding of trans people has grown more people stay together and i don't think that a marriage ending is the end of the world i don't think it's a bit you know love can die and that sort of thing and things move on i think love is more like and this is the disappointing thing for me in the marriage debate, is it was a very bourgeois argument about whether or not people could get married and therefore have status, have a wedding, have status over other people. When to me, the marriage, in the marriage, in, in the Bible, it's that my understanding of marriage is really that it's a sign of, um, you know, covenant of a commitment to, to a way of being, a way of loving if you commit to one person, <laughs> there are pluses and minuses, but to some degree, it means that that there for me, I'm, you know, my partner has been a, and my wife has been a support to me to, you know, encouragement on the way to do, to be who I am. That's the point. Our marriage isn't about us achieving a status and, and the old queer, queer, I mean, that's why a lot of queer people in the past didn't want marriage at all because they didn't want us to become bourgeois bourgeois sort of versions of queer versions, you know, rainbow sort of colored versions of heterosexuality. So I think there's like, but but we then come down to what really matters to, to, to do with, you know, love, trust, what helps human beings flourish. And I think that where you've got trust in a relationship, and when we got to camp polyamory work, is that possible that you can have a depth of trust for that sort of thing? That's an open question, I think, for some people. is. But you, but I think to be trustworthy, to have proper respect for one another, those things in. So then we come back to not whether or not you've got a license and you happen to have got the right genitals, but are you treating one another, not just the other person's genitals well, and you hope that, you know, maybe Christians should be helping people to have good sex as well. But it's much more than that. You know, how do you live in a way that reflects what is truly loving of God? Um, and that's that that that's what I hope for marriage is that it's like a little. Once when I was younger, there was a Roman Catholic person, and they called it marriage a little church, which sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Pretty oppressive. But I think what they meant was in the good sense that it was a place where you could learn to fly. It might be a place of grace where you could learn about how you could forgive one another um, and how you could. You, know, you could live with one and how you could help 
people to grow and how the fruits of the spirit can grow in one another's lives. And I think that's for me as well. And I guess that's probably what has kept us going, you know, um, as well as a sort of a sense of being against the world, maybe as well. <laughs> that's a long answer, but yeah, I, it's a great question because people don't ask that question. They just say, you know, can you, how can you justify getting married or whatever, you know, and I've had a lot of funny things. I've got a lovely friend up in Swanbush. She's a, a journalist. And she, I was on a radio program with her and she asked me things. And then she said, so, cause she knows my wife. And she said, from when we were in Toowoomba and she said, so are you now, do you now live like sisters? <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to say because it was about, I don't know, it was somewhere between, it's about half past nine in the morning. And I thought, it's not really a thing where you talk about your intimate behavior. Right? And I said, mm, not exactly. And, but you know, the assumptions that people have about things is quite incredible, really. Um, so there's a lot of growing, I think, you know. It's a beautiful way to wrap up, Josephine. Thanks for sharing uh, some of your passion and your heart for the issues at hand but also of who you are and and how you live and how you love it's really beautiful we can't let you go of course and finish up uh, an included podcast without the fast five it's uh, a favorite segment of ours as we finish up just to get some rapid fire responses to you on some questions do you feel ready do you are you prepared for the fast five <laughs> yeah sure yeah all right let's do it this is the fast five. Josephine, thinking of people who are gender or sexuality diverse, where do you find hope in the Bible? Oh, I think there's all sorts of people. The one I love best is the man who carries the water jar that gets missed out in the story. You know, when Jesus sends someone at the Last Supper to find a man with a water jar on, and you think, we never noticed. That's very culturally inappropriate. Why is this man with a water jar? It's a woman's job. And you think, that's interesting. And so how did, the real question is, how did Jesus know this person? He must have mixed with these people. And I just love the story, all the eunuchs and the, and Joseph, there's a wonderful thing, Josephine, that's another way of calling them, who wore, a, wore, wore what's called a, spirit, a princess dress, which is the name that, of their dress. No wonder they were sort of being, you know, um, kicked out by their brothers because they weren't quite what they were. Do you know what I mean? And then, um, and Jacob himself, the, the smooth man. And the, there's a whole there's a whole lot of things. But the Ethiopian eunuch is probably the classic story. And it, the first to be baptised in the Acts of Apostle and just breaks all the boundaries. Where do you see hope in the church? Oh, I think the hope of the church I see in the people that are rising up, the young people, the Marion Street folk, non-binary people here in Sydney who sang and played the other day. They're amazing. And the older people who are com coming out, you know, the people who's who said who contact me and they say oh um yeah i'm trans as well and actually i think it's it's our time now and and i see it across all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and i think we're unstoppable ultimately but it will be a long journey what does being a good ally mean to you i think it means being an accomplice i hate the word ally really it's an accomplice that you actually get your hands dirty and that you suffer some of the shame and the blame and everything else and the joys as well and that's what i hope i can be sometimes with other people but that's what i want people who are you know in there and they're with you and then when you they're there, and when you look around they're they're with you yeah they haven't disappeared <laughs> 
If you had one message for the Salvation Army, what would it be? Sounds a bit cliched, but be your best self. I mean, you know, my my un- my grandfather in the First World War, it was the Salvation Army that looked after him when he was injured and everything else. And he became a Salvation Army person for quite a while because that was the job that General Booth and others were drawn to do with the... They didn't bother with all this sort of nonsense. Other churches have got the clever doctrine and everything else, but they weren't building cathedrals of the mind and all that sort of thing like the medieval philosophers. What they were doing was actually living out like Jesus and caring for people. And when you do that, then you also receive from those people, and that's what was happening. And when I first came out in Brisbane, a lot of the... Trans people I was in a group with, a number of them were actually being helped by, one of them was a cook in a, in a Salvation Army, um, uh, you know, project, and the others were working in shops and other, and they were being given jobs and empowered. And that's what I think is happening at the best with Salvation Army. It's when the Salvation Army tries to be a church in the, you know, in, and, and, and it and tries to work with all the doctrine, it gets in a bit of a mess. That stuff needs doing, but I don't think that's the strength of the Salvation Army. And that witness and that gift to the rest of the church is absolutely essential. Thanks. And lastly, uh, but certainly not least, if you had one message for those who are gender or sexuality diverse, what would it be? Oh, know that you are fearfully and wonderfully met, that you are utterly and utterly loved, but that you are much more than you even imagine now. That you, you're, tra- you're not just trans, that's glorious to be trans, but you are also a whole lot of other things. And now that you have been freed from being trans, you can be other things as well. And, and you know, it, you will suffer a bit, but, you know, it's worth it because God is great and love will prevail. God is great and love will prevail. Josephine Imken, thank you so much for joining us on Included, the podcast. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks very much.